This weekend is the fourth of our Experience China weekends, through which we're exploring Chinese culture, cuisine, art, landscape, architecture, and the Chinese diaspora as part of our public programming for, China, for Celestial Empire, Life in China, 1644 to 1911. Celestial Empire and its public programs would not be possible without the support of a tremendous group of partners. It has been an extraordinary collaboration between government, commercial partners and individual donors. First and foremost, I thank the National Library of China for, its, for sharing its extraordinary collection with us and with all of you. I hope you will take the opportunity to visit the exhibition today. I thank our partners, Shell in Australia, Seven Network, Wanda One Proprietary Limited, Optus Singtel, Huawei, Cafe Pacific, TFE Hotels, and event partners, the ANU Centre for China in the World, and Asia Society Australia for their generosity. I thank our government partners, the Australian Government for support through the National Collecting Institutions Touring Outreach Program, and the Australia-China Council and the ACT government through Visit Canberra. Importantly, I thank all of you for joining us this afternoon to hear from Roger Carter. Roger has had a long interest in Chinese culture, beginning with his first career in Chinese medicine. He joined the Department of Immigration and was posted to Beijing, which is where his passion for furniture started. Like enthusiastic collectors of antiques anywhere in the world, he and his wife spent their weekends looking at furniture, talking with collectors and dealers, and, of course, buying favourite pieces. Roger's passion has become his occupation. He and his wife own Humble House Furniture in Fishwick. They generously loaned the library a number of items from the Qing period, which are on display in the foyer and oral history wall cabinet. These include a horse-drawn carriage, scholar's travel chest, carved window panel and black folding chair. And I'm sure Roger will touch on these items today. This afternoon, Roger is going to explore the evolution of Chinese furniture through major forms and styles. He'll also reveal to us the underlying symbolism that is essential to understanding and appreciating the tastes and aspirations of the people who use the furniture on a daily basis. We will have time for questions at the end of our session today, so please hold any queries until that time. Please welcome Roger Carter. Uh, thanks, Daniil, for that very warm uh, introduction. And uh, welcome, everyone, to this afternoon's talk. Um, what I'll be intending to do is to cover Chinese furniture from the beginning right through to the present day. The talk will be broken into three major parts. The first part, I'll be talking about background development and major characteristics of Chinese furniture. The second part, we'll be talking about Chinese furniture and Chinese society. And then the third part, we'll be talking about uh, Chinese furniture and the West. So let's get going. Uh, first part of development of Chinese furniture, early Chinese society was a mat culture. So daily activities such as eating, sleeping, entertaining 
were all carried out at that level. And etiquette was very important. So if you look at the, these two gentlemen, they're both sitting down, they're roughly in a sort of like a, a cross-legged position. Now, what that indicates is that they're, they're, they're comfortable in each other's um, uh, company, uh, but also that they're equal in status. If there was one was more senior than the other, then the junior person would be sitting down with their legs tucked under them in you know, sort of a, a, a more, more polite uh, situate position. Now, that carried on right through up until things started to change in the Hun dynasty. And it came with the introduction of two, of two different types of raised seating. The first part, or the first style, was what we have here, which is a, a folding stool. Now, the folding stool wasn't native to China. It actually came from outside. And it was first recorded uh, as something that the emperor in the second century had a particular liking for. Now, people hadn't seen this sort of thing before, so they didn't know what to call it. But it came from somewhere outside of China. It sort of looked a bit like a bed, and so that's what they called it, the, the Hutuang, or barbarian bed. Now, over time, the bed, the, sorry, this, uh, the folding stool evolved to become the folding chair. Now, but this didn't happen overnight. It took a process of about a 1,000 years. So that's the development of one style of raised seating. The other style of raised seating oops, was the frame chair. Now, it didn't look quite like this, um, but it came to China from India with the introduction of Buddhism in sometime around the first century AD. Now, India had chairs... We, you know, 15, uh, two and a half thousand years ago. They were used by the ruling elite and they were also used by uh, senior monks. And when Buddhism was introduced into China, then someone brought a chair along with them. And those early chairs were quite large. In fact, they were large enough that people could sit cross-legged uh, in them and a number of them also had uh, a corded seat so it would make it a little bit more comfortable. Now... That process, you had that with the introduction of these different types of seating, the process is one of adoption and adaptation to Chinese culture. And as I've just mentioned, that process, it took about a 1,000 years for that to, to occur. Here we have, it's a detail of uh, China's most famous painting called uh, Qingming Shanghetul, uh, or celebrating Qingming on the, on, the, on the river. And it's a very long scroll painting uh, from the early 12th century. And you can hopefully see here we have benches, uh, over here there are tables. So it just shows that by the 12th century, um, the Chinese shift from a mat culture to a chair culture was complete across all levels of society. Now, one of the questions to ask then is, well, what does that actually mean, you know, just moving from, from mat to chair? Well, your whole style of living changes when you go from um, a mat culture to, to the chair. 
there's a proliferation of a whole range of furniture. Uh, if you need a chair, then you're going to have tables. There'll be higher cabinets. Floors will also change. With a mat culture, when you enter a, when you enter a house, you're taking your shoes off um, because you don't want to get it dirty because that's where you're going to sleep. With chair cultures, there's a much wider range of, of floor coverings, at least until you're going to get into sort of the, 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 be, the bedroom area. Um, it was also, it's also been said by a couple of uh, authors that um, ceiling heights and window heights change. Um, unfortunately, I haven't been able to sort of to, to prove that. Uh, maybe it happened, maybe it, maybe it didn't. Um, but essentially, life changes completely. You also tend to, you'll be wearing shoes around the house more. In relation to the furniture, um, is when you're at, a, at the floor level, is you tend to look at the furniture straight on. When you're up and about and walking around, then you're going to be looking at furniture from different, from different sides and different angles. So with, say, for example, Japanese furniture, you tend to get more of the decoration is on the front. The side is just more about utility. With Chinese furniture, you tend to get more of there's carving and decoration on the sides as well. So if you look at a lot of tables, they'll be carved on, on all four sides. So life changes considerably. Now, it's interesting to note that China was the only Asian culture to adopt the chair form of living until modern times. Now, the question, of course, arises, well, why? It's not an easy question to answer, but it was probably just who became more comfortable. Um, and it was something that, just, that suited those people. Now, the next uh, little section is going to be about on particular characteristics of, of Chinese furniture. So the main point of, is, OK, they've taken up, they're making all these different styles of furniture. How did they make it? So all traditional Chinese furniture is handmade with hand tools. And with the joinery... Here is a, a small cabinet that, that we've got in our, in our own gallery that has been prepared to reveal the joinery. Now, the Chinese were experts at joinery because that was how they used to build one, one of their styles of houses. It was all about mortise and tenon joinery. So it's solid timber making very tight mortise and tenon joinery. And here is the corner of that little cabinet uh, that I just showed you. And you can just you can see if that works, the tenon through there, and that would slip into the mortise here. Now the other thing about uh, Chinese furniture is so the frame was mortise and tenon joinery, and the panels would we would sit in in tongue and groove. Now what does what's so good about all of that? Well, the thing about mortise and tenon joinery and using tongue and groove panels is the first thing is, is that if you know how to make it, you know how to take it apart. So <clears throat> this furniture, it was made that if there was damage, you could actually take it apart, examine it, and then decide what work needs to be done, undertake that repair, and put it back together. Now, the other feature about Chinese uh, uh, joinery is that the joints come together to form an interlocking hole. So it's the joints that hold all the furniture together, as opposed to a lot of more modern-day furniture, 
where the joint is really just to increase the, the gluing surface and put it together and also then support it with screws or nails. This furniture was made that the joints would hold it together. And this system of carpentry continued right through until the middle of the 20th century. So it was a tradition um, that, that stayed with China. They didn't, go, they didn't have an industrial revolution. They didn't have the changes in, in technology that, that occurred in the West. Um, this was how it was made in the beginning, and the joints evolved. They became more, uh, more complex and better, but it, it was a way to... Um, is the way they maintained the, the, to make the furniture right through um, until the 20th century. Now, the, the other thing about this furniture is with joinery, in a lot of cases, as you, you can take it apart, which means that you can flat pack it, transport it, and then reassemble the furniture in a, in a new location. Um, and that happened uh, quite a lot. The, now, the other important characteristic about Chinese furniture is that particularly a lot of the early furniture was lacquered. Lacquer was invented by the Chinese about 8,000 years ago. Um, it's actually the resin from um, a particular species of tree that was native to China and a few other neighbouring countries. Um, the reason for lacquering furniture... I've got a piece there... Um, is there are two purposes. One is that it helped preserve the timber so that lacquered pieces, they can last hundreds if not thousands of years. The other thing is that it's beautiful. And as you can see here, is the, um, red <coughs> the natural lacquer, as it comes out of the tree, is sort of a grey colour and it gradually darkens uh, as it dries and then they can add oxides to it to, to give it different colours. And the red and black lacquer is the, uh, they're the most uh, common colours that you'll see on Chinese furniture. Now, OK, so we've covered rise from mat to chair. Um, we've had a look at the, the joinery and the lacquer's main characteristics. The, the next thing about Chinese furniture are the styles. Now, European furniture, the styles of furniture change quite frequently. But with Chinese furniture... It's really recognised as only there are two major styles and they're called Ming and Qing styles of furniture. Ming uh, relates to the Ming period from you know, 14th to 17th century and Qing relates to furniture from uh, the 17th to the 20th century. Now, the, the differentiation between the two is that Ming furniture is said to be very simple with just beautiful lines... Um, so here you've got a, a, a pair of, uh, of cabinets. There's no ornamentation on them at all, uh, black lacquered, and they just stand, and they're just majestic standing together. Qing-style furniture is considered to be more ornate. Now, there's a bit of a problem with using that, those, um, those terms because there was Ming style furniture being made in the Qing dynasty and there was certainly plenty of what we'd call Qing style furniture being made in the, in the Ming period. Um, so this brings with it a little bit of a problem if there are only two main styles. Is, 
and people latched onto this very, very quickly and said, well, the problem with Chinese furniture is that you don't know how old it is. It can be a problem, but there are clues that, that can help. One, as you get more experience, is to be looking at the, at the, um, the way it's been made um, and also look at the timbers and, and wear and other things. But a tiny percentage of Chinese furniture was actually date marked. Now, on this, this is a particular piece. It's a, um, a small cosmetic and jewellery stand. And on the inside of the left-hand door, is, or the right-hand door as you're looking at the photo, there is this calligraphy. Now, and what it says is it, that this piece was made on the, the 19th year of the reign of, of em, 19th year of the Emperor Jia Qing. Now, we can go to, to books and find that that actually corresponds to 1814. The other little bit of information which is really um, nice about this particular piece is that it said it was um, sold for 310 cash. Um, that's it, which is really quite unusual to get that level of, of detail in a piece. Now, that's one form of date marking. Another form of, um, of date marking is where instead of having the emperor's um, year, is they have uh, what they call celestial stems, and it'll be some characters which uh, correspond to a particular year in a 60-year in a cycle. Now, the problem with that is that it might be 1870, but it might be 1930. It might be 1810. So without more information, that becomes a little bit difficult to, uh, to differentiate. And another one that you sometimes get is um, it might be in sort of a, a Western calendar as, as well. Now, having date-marked pieces, and when we get them, we, we tend to hold on to them because they make fantastic reference points and benchmarks for being able to look at other furniture um, and be able to say, well, if we know that one to be you know, early 19th century, that looks to be having about the sort of the same pattern or of age about it. It's probably around the same, around the same period. So those are the major uh, characteristics of, of Chinese furniture. So now we can start to look at sort of how the, how the Chinese use their furniture. Now, one of the things um, about Chinese furniture, and I, I mentioned earlier about sort of that sense of etiquette as a mat culture, well, that, that etiquette, those good manners, that didn't change with the development of Chinese furniture. Um, and that's the sense of, of good manners uh, uh, remained. Now, downstairs, there's a, uh, in the, the collection, there's a first edition of a, China's most famous novel, Hung O Meng, or Dream of Red Mansions, also known as Story of the Stone. Now, it's a fantastic book to read if you want to sort of see how um, you know, people and furniture uh, work together. And there's a particular scene in that book uh, where Granny Liu, who is a distant but much-loved relative, comes to visit the, the heads of the family. And they're sitting in their bed. And it may have been a bed not dissimilar to this. Now, if you're invited to sit on a bed, 
you had to be a close relative or a very, very close friend. The Chinese didn't have sofas or couches, so the bed took on that role. So in this particular scene, Granny Liu is invited onto the bed, but she absolutely refuses. The closest that she'll get is to sit on a stool next to the bed. She says, I am not good enough to sit with, 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 with you people. Sorry, I won't do it at all. Um, incidentally, with this bed is uh, relating back to the joinery that uh, we spoke about earlier. This comes apart completely. You could pack it up and most of it would fit in the back of a small car. Now, I also mentioned beds because it's, it's one of the... It's a, you know, another important piece of Chinese furniture because if you're no longer sleeping on the floor, then you're going to need something to sleep on and so they got their beds. And the Chinese loved their beds um, and they came in different styles. This one uh, it comes in a... Uh, it's a three-sided... That's called a, a monk's bed, sometimes an opium bed. Um, and I'll be talking a bit more about the uh, panels in a, in a few minutes. Um, now, this particular, this painting, it's uh, from the 10th century and it's called The Night Revels of, of Han Shi Zai. Um, it was painted the, on the orders of the emperor. He wanted um, Han to, to come and take up a, an official position and, and Han kept on refusing, making all sorts of excuses. So the emperor sent this artist to go and say, what's this bloke actually up to? Um, and he went and visited him, and he made a series of paintings of the of the scenes. Now, this is a it's a, an interesting painting for a number of reasons. One is um, if you look at the the bed that um, Hun, who I I guess is the guy sitting on the right, um, it's a three sided bed, but it's very high. It's from the 10th century, so you can see that there's furniture is developing. Um, it hasn't reached that sort of maturity that the previous picture of the, uh, the three-sided bed has. Um, the other is the guy sitting next to him, he must be, be close. Now look at the other people. You have a few of them who are, who are seated and there are a few who are standing. So furniture is status. If you're allowed to sit down, you are a more senior person than the others who are forced to stand. So in this, in this one painting, you, you can see you know, the, the, the social status of the particular individuals. You might also notice what looks like upholstery through there. Um, at, at first sight, you think, oh, it looks like an upholstered chair. It's not. It's actually a chair runner, um, which, were, which were very popular. If they wanted additional comfort, they'd actually put a, um, uh, a cushion down. Chinese furniture wasn't upholstered. Um, it never was. Now, another important and really interesting aspect of Chinese furniture is the influence of Chinese medicine um, on the design and development of, of furniture. And this is a really interesting topic because the books that I've got don't really... They'll talk about sort of different aspects of furniture and culture, but medicine doesn't get a, um, a look in. But if you talk to Chinese, a lot of them know about furniture and medicine. It's just in inherent in, in, in the way that they've been, been brought up. Um, but I wanted to bring a couple of things to, uh, to your attention. Now, 
One of the things that's, that's said, a lot of people say about Chinese chairs, two things. One, they're too big. And the second thing is they're really uncomfortable. Okay, let's address the, 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 the in turn. Why are Chinese chairs large? Well, the tables are larger, but the chairs themselves, they are bigger by that much, the, the, the front stretcher. So almost all Chinese chairs come with that stretcher, which is a footrest. Why? Well, to put your feet on. Why? Because so many Chinese homes, the floors were quite cold and they may have been damp. In Chinese medicine terms, cold and damp is an external cause of disease. So by raising your feet, you're keeping, maintaining better health and reducing the risk of you know, circulation problems and arthritis. Now, the second thing about the chairs being uncomfortable is unlike us sloppy Westerners who lounge about in chairs, you didn't lounge about in... The Chinese didn't lounge about in their chairs. They sat up straight because it was better posture is better for your health. That's why they, they didn't pay the same attention to the ergonomics of the, of the furniture because they didn't need to. Now, another really interesting piece of Chinese furniture is the screen. Now, Chinese screens are beautiful. They are, this, this is a, a wonderful example of a screen. But a screen in Chinese is called a pingfeng, which means a shield against the wind. What does that mean? Well, so screens were used to keep drafts off you. Okay, well, that's interesting. Now, it was the value of the pingfeng was really brought home to me when I was studying Chinese medicine in Shanghai, which included a three-month placement at one of the hospitals. And one day, I walk into the ward, and there's a young guy, and he's got facial paralysis on one side. Hasn't had a stroke. It's, you know, in the West, we call it Bell's palsy. It's, it's um, you know, there's a nerve problem with the uh, trigeminal nerve. And I went up and said, what happened to you? And he said, remember that really windy night three, three, three nights ago? This was winter. And I said, yeah, it was really cold. He said, well, there was a crack in the wall. And I went to bed and the wind blew on my face and I woke up like this. Now, he needed a ping pong. So it shows the practical aspects of that furniture is not only beautiful and functional, but it's important. It's good for health. Now, this is a really, another really interesting piece. It's a footpath. And it's one of the real pleasures of the, the job that I do is that I get to talk to people. And one of my uh, Chinese customers, she was in one day, and she said, Roger, why does that footbath have feet? Keep it off the floor, I said, somewhat unconvincingly. 
yes, true, but why is it like that? I said, I don't know. He said, okay, so the foot bath would be filled with hot water and you'd be sitting on, in a chair or on a stool and you'd put a foot in, but you couldn't keep your foot there all the time. So you'd rest your foot on the edge of the foot bath. Now, if it didn't have those feet, it would be obviously lower to the ground and when you're sitting there, your leg would be straight. By having it raised, you can be sitting there with your legs slightly bent and that's better for chi flow, for energy flow. That's why it's like that. Now, I love that because here you have such a, a modest piece of furniture but the thought and care that's actually gone into, into making it. Um, and then to have someone come and explain that to me, it just makes that piece that so much more special. Every time I see it, I remember that conversation, and I just love that. Aha, uh-huh. okay. Now we get into another important um, aspect of Chinese furniture and how it works in society. Uh, Another thing that people will often say about Chinese furniture is, oh, it's all so ornate. What they don't realise is the underlying story behind the motifs of, of furniture. Now, and these motifs come from different sources. And we'll just talk about a few of them here. Now, what we have here is, it's a, it's a really beautiful kitchen cabinet. And if you look at the along the top, is it has four characters. And what they are is it's uh, the characters for uh, plum, uh, orchid, bamboo and chrysanthemum. So they represent the four seasons. And going from right to left, it starts off with winter, spring, summer and autumn. So observations from nature is one source of uh, the symbolic motifs. Another is legends and gods. And this panel is from the, uh, the, the bed uh, that I showed a little bit, a bit earlier, and it shows the eight immortals. And as a group, they represent uh, a wish for long life. Now, some of you have probably been quick enough to say, hang on, there are nine. Well, if eight gods isn't enough to give you long life, let's add the god of longevity as well. And you, you'll get there. So uh, see, uh, nature and then uh, mythology are sources of uh, the motifs. Another source is idiomatic phrases. And one, this one is it's, it's quite literal, um, the saying in Chinese is wu fu peng shou, five bats surrounding a long life motive. Now, the five bats represent the five blessings. And the five blessings are wishes for happiness, uh, long life, good health, love of virtue, and a peaceful passing. Now, there is another rendition of the five bats that substitutes wealth for happiness. 
So you can have a long, happy, healthy, virtuous life and then hop off the twig. Or you can have a long, wealthy, healthy, virtuous life and then hop off the twig. Now, so you look at it and say, well, am I allowed to substitute any of the others? And say, well, let's have a long, happy, wealthy, healthy life and hop off the twig. We'll sod the virtue. Well, no, you can't. Because virtue is so deeply embedded in Chinese culture from Confucian times. So you can substitute happiness for wealth or the other way around, but everything else stays. So you start to get a sense then of the cultural values of Chinese society. Now, here we have, it's a four-section cabinet. And I'm just going to look at the detail of a couple. Now, what this is, it's a visual representation um, and it's a magpie and plum blossom. Now, this is what's called, it's in, in English we call it a rebus. It's um, a picture tells a, a thousand words, essentially. And in Chinese, the scene of a magpie on a branch of plum blossom is said, Shi Shang Mei Shao. Now, Chinese love linguistic puns. There's a whole genre of comedy devoted to it. And if you substitute different characters, written characters with the same pronunciation, you get the meaning of be happy till the end of your eyebrows. And that's what this particular uh, motif is, is telling us. And coincidentally, um, the plum blossom, which has five petals, it also represents the five blessings, if you want to take it to another level. So what you get with a lot of um, Chinese symbols is that it's layered. Now, also, um, what we have here is these are be, be scenes from a, chi a Chinese opera, a story of some sort. Now, I don't know what this particular uh, story is, but again, if we go back to Hung Lo Mung and some of the characters in that story, is the, the people, you pick up very quickly just how smart and how well-educated people were. And the, the, the people in, in the characters in Hung Lo Mong, they would look at this and they would know immediately what the story is and what the scene is. So these weren't made as you know, sort of decorative. They were made for people to, under, to understand. And the, they did. Now here we have a two-drawer table and it's got some particular motifs. And from here, it's the four arts of the scholar, which are, here's a musical instrument called the chin. Uh, this is a chessboard. It's a bit like Chinese chess, a bit like Go. Um, then over here, we have books. And then here, we have paintings. Now, the four arts of the scholar were um, music, being able to play Chinese chess, um, painting and, and calligraphy, and also being knowledgeable about, you know, sort of calligraphy and, and the, the classics. So what you have here is 
at one level it's, oh, well, isn't that interesting? It's a representation of, um, you know, particular motifs. But these, these symbols were also a powerful way to transmit cultural values. So here the message is, hey, you need to study hard in these areas in order for you to pass the imperial examinations and get an official position. And then we'll all be better off. So you see with a lot of the motifs that there's, it's getting people to, to pull together and to become you know, sort of part of Chinese society um, and to have the same types of aspirations. Um, and that, that's something that is, that's, that's important about the, uh, the symbolic motifs of, of Chinese furniture. Okay, so we've covered the Chinese side of things. Now we're going to have a look at Chinese furniture and the West. Now, the West was fascinated with China ever since Marco Polo in the 13th century uh, came back and started telling his, his stories about what he'd, he'd seen in China. And the desire for Chinese goods increased over the centuries. And during the, the 17th and 18th century, there was an insatiable desire for, for Chinese products. And that included things like silk, lacquer, porcelain. Now, in relation to, to, the, to furniture, is there, wasn't, there was some Chinese furniture that was coming from traditional Chinese furniture that was being imported into, into places like um, Britain. But there wasn't huge amounts and it was expensive. So, for example, a Chinese cabinet was um, given as a wedding present to uh, Princess Elizabeth in 1713 and it cost £10,000, which is an incredible amount. So... You had sort of goods coming into, uh, into Europe from China, um, but it, it wasn't enough to meet demand. So what happened is that European manufacturers started to produce their own products in the Chinese manner and in Chinese style. And it led to this fashion trend that we call chinoiserie, and so chinoiserie is European manufactured goods in a Chinese style. And here we have an example of uh, Thomas Chippendale. And <clears throat> the text sort of says that, which is interesting, with Chinese lacquer panels and English Japanning. Now, we have Chinese, the traditional lacquer. There's also another product called shellac. Lacquer comes from a tree, shellac comes from an insect, and then there's this other thing called Japanning. Japanning was the, the European uh, substitution uh, for, um, for lacquer, and they used a, a range of different products. Now, why was it called Japanning? Well, even in the 18th century, Europeans understood that Japanese lacquer 
was finer in quality than Chinese. Now, you also had that porcelain was coming in from China. So anything that was sort of like porcelain was called, and is still called, we still call it now, China. Now, the lacquer, which came from Japan, was superior in quality to that of the Chinese, so they called it Japaning, even though it actually applied to their Europeans' own version of lacquering. It gets confusing. So, chinoiserie was a really big hit during, particularly during the 18th century. It petered out a little bit during the, the 19th century, but it still continued. Now, the there was another level of, of, of interest with in we're looking at Chinese furniture. And this is what's called the China trade. So if chinoiserie was Europeans making things in a Chinese style, the China trade was furniture that was being made in China to European design and it was being made for the European market. So during this period, 17th, 18th, going right through to the 19th century, there was this huge supply and demand for goods that were either in a Chinese style or you also had sort of furniture that was, had a Chinese flavour to it but it was really being made for the Europeans. The important thing here is that the traditional Chinese furniture was not going into out of China in any great quantity. It would have been more as a curiosity. And so there's that quite clear distinction. So ch traditional Chinese furniture was by and large staying in China. Now, I mention that because it's about to change. And I'll come back, I'll leave that there. Come into the 20th century, and for the first time, you start to see books being written and published that take up the topic of Chinese, traditional Chinese furniture. I have not been able to find anything earlier than the 20th century. And before 1985, the number of books on the topic was small. I've come up with about four. One in the 1920s, a couple in the 1940s, another one in, and another one in the, in the 1960s. In the mid-80s, things start to change. And you've got a number of things coming together at the same time. One of these is that China is starting to open up. And you're now getting large numbers of foreigners coming into the country and staying for extended periods of time, either you know, for, for work or for study. Um, the tourist trade is also starting to, um, to gather momentum. Around that time also is you get some seminal publications of books, and the most famous of which is Classic Chinese Furniture by Wang Shixiang, um, who, it's a, a magnificent book, on Ming hardwood furniture with beautiful photographs. And that captures people's imagination. 
you also start to get markets opening up in China and being allowed to stay open. So, the, um, and when Westerners saw traditional Chinese furniture, they went nuts over it. They just loved it. And so you had this insatiable desire for Chinese furniture and a whole new industry uh, blossomed of people... Sorry about that. People native to a particular province going out and collecting furniture. And it wasn't difficult for them because a lot of the furniture wasn't in, in great condition. It had just been sitting around for decades and they were happy to get, get rid of it because they wanted to get some nice chrome and laminated furniture which, which worked better. Um, and then you had you know, networks of, of dealers who were getting the furniture and it was being exported. So from the mid-80s right up until the earlier part of, the, of the, the current century, furniture was being exported in enormous volumes to the point that now it's running out and that people who see this sort of furniture like the, like the chair will say, the Chinese will say, you don't see this furniture in China anymore. Um, so... That's you know, an enormous shift. So where you had centuries of people looking for Chinese-style type things, suddenly now they were going for the real, the real deal and they took it out. An untold story is how much Chinese material culture was taken out of the country in such a short period of time. Um, does anyone care about it? Who knows? Now, I'll finish in a couple of minutes, is another thread to, this, to the story of Chinese furniture is Western furniture designers. Now, what you see here is a classic piece of Chinese furniture, the horseshoe or circular back armchair. It is a unique Chinese design. Now... It didn't appear in Europe until the 18th century and they really loved it. And a famous designer from, um, from Denmark, Hans Wegner, in the 1940s he saw a portrait of Danish merchants seated around the traditional horseshoe back armchair. And he goes, that is just lovely. And so he went on to develop his own interpretation of that chair, which you see here. It's still being made by um, the same manufacturers and you can still buy it today. In fact, you could go out to Design Craft this afternoon and you could probably get yourself one. And the first models that he called this chair, he called it his Chinese chair. Um, now, here we have... This is just a, a final example. Is This is a, a typical... Uh, three-draw um, Beijing or Tianjin sideboard. And here you can see its interpretation. This is actually done by local cabinet maker uh, Evan Dunstone. Um, so you can see he's picked up... Oops. Don't need to do that. Uh, the curved ends. And he's reinterpreted it.
Now, one of the interesting things about this sort of taking up the inspiration of Chinese furniture and interpret, reinterpreting it into modern-day furniture is that it gets so embedded is that no one, it, no, one's no, no one now knows what the original piece looked like. Um, so it just, and that's, that's fine. Uh, it just shows how, how things change about. I can stop there. Thank you.